this isn't the United States government going into, say, Angola or Nigeria and saying, here, this is, here's a bunch of money from us. Yeah. Um, we'd prefer you spend it on X, Y, and Z. This is the U.S. government supporting private company investment in African countries. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. John Madeira, a junior fellow at ASP, recently wrote a report called Choosing the American Model, Development Finance as a Soft Power Tool in Africa. For over a decade, China has invested quite heavily in Africa, all across the continent. This brought a lot of hand-wringing in the United States, but little action. In this podcast, John and I talk about how Congress has started to change that. But this isn't just throwing more American aid at Africa. This is about using America's best assets, our businesses and our markets, as a way to counter Chinese influence. I think it's more attractive than corrupting Chinese money, and the evidence is that Africans think so too. But the challenge is ensuring that American policymakers and leaders continue to focus on Africa and don't just leave the continent to our competitors. Now, let's get to the discussion. John Madeira, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's great to be here. So you just published a paper with ASP called Choosing the American Model, Development Finance as a Soft Power Tool in Africa. And you talk a lot in, in this paper about the importance of Africa and then also why it's important in this new age of great power competition in the United States. So why don't we just start with the big picture there? Why is Africa important? Africa is so often overlooked in American foreign policy debates. And uh, what makes Africa important? Why do you think it's such an important place for the 21st century? So I think there's a number of reasons why it would be super important, starting with the fact that it's growing rapidly. Um, in the paper, I note that 40% of the world's population will be in Africa by 2100. Uh, and much of that will be a very young population, which presents kind of two different paths. One is very good, mm-hmm. where if they manage the um, demographic transition uh, properly, they can hit the demographic dividend that could spur economic growth in Africa. Spur economic growth and all of a sudden have a super populous, more developing um, area. Or it can go really, really poorly. And all of a sudden you have this high youth population with kind of no employment opportunities, no real super concrete um, future, in which case that can create trouble. I think we've seen a little bit of that in the Middle East over the last few years. We have a lot of large youth youth unemployment, and that kind of gets you into... Yes, this idea of, of demographics is destiny, right? Yep. When, you have, when you have a young population, especially a bunch of young men, you got to have something for them to do. And yes. if you don't, then that's a, that, that could cause real problems. Yes, because if, if you don't have anything to do, you find something to do. And what you find to do might not be um, something that's in the best interest of the U.S. or China or the world. Right. Right. Or their own country. Yes. You know, people, people are going to find something to yeah. do and find something to try and uh, make their family better off. Um, we'd like that to be a positive economic uh, growth mm-hmm. sort of story and not a negative one where they, they you know, fall into terror recruitment yep. or corruption or, or anything else like that. Yep. So, so, and, you know, we... A lot of times, of course, we talk about Africa as this monolithic thing, but of Mm -hmm. course, it's a huge continent, right? (laughs) It's often, you know, we forget about that. And there's, there's vast diversity within the continent as well. 
you know, so, so where, where do you think um, the, the focus within Africa is and, and, you know, do you see big differences there? So there's definitely a difference in terms of, in the paper, I kind of touch on like investment numbers. There's a huge disparity in where China is investing in Africa. You don't see a lot of money flowing into Samoan Principe or something like that. You see a boatload of money flying into Nigeria because Nigeria has one of the largest oil markets or one of the largest oil reserves in the world. Yeah. Um, so that's actually another thing about why Africa is so important is that there is just so, so many resources especially oil and gas, um, Libya, Nigeria, Algeria, Angola, Egypt, and I think Mozambique are among some of the most resource-rich countries in the world in terms of oil, natural gas. Yeah. And then all over the continent, you see diamonds, gold, nickel, uranium, titanium, graphite, yeah. iron, copper, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. So you have a giant country that is very different, um, all of different resource profiles and whatnot. So that is what... Um, and of course, that's that's one that's been one of the reasons that China is so interested in in Africa is because China feels like it is a resource poor country, uh, and it is investing in Africa as a way to kind of make up for that. They're they're trying to secure resources for their future growth, whether it's oil and gas, or rare earth minerals, or everything else that you need to power a modern economy. They, they feel like they need to, to invest here to be able to grab those and secure them. Absolutely. Um, so, so, of course, you know, the United States, we often feel less uh, important about that because we are so blessed as well with resource wealth, you know, whether yep. oil and gas or minerals or that sort of stuff. Um, but of course, you know, in this age of great power competition, if you know, and, and I think this is important. If the United States isn't there, you know, kind of geopolitics doesn't like a vacuum, right? So, you know, the, the Chinese have, have jumped in there. Um, one of the big things that you talk about in your paper um, was the passage, was it last year, of the BUILD Act. Can you explain yes. that and talk about you know, what that intends to do and the new U.S. Development Finance Corporation. Yeah, so the BUILD Act was a bipartisan bill that passed in, I think, 2018 or 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of development finance, the biggest takeaway was it, I guess, built a major overhaul, major overhaul of U.S. development finance practices. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the last 40-something years, U.S. development finance has been carried out by OPIC, which has been the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, uh, and it had its mandate on a year-to-year -year basis. Um, it had a cap of $29 billion in terms of supporting investments and like that. So the DFC, the Development Finance Corporation, was the main consequence or byproduct of the BUILD Act. And the biggest difference that I've noticed is that the cap has doubled, well, actually more than doubled. Um, so now DFC can support up to $60 billion a year uh, in terms of supporting investments and whatnot. And it also, I think a really big thing is it has a seven-year mandate. So instead of kind of hanging in limbo year to year, are we going to get funded? Are we not going to get funded? What's the budget going to be like? What's the budget not going to be like? Uh, especially how difficult it is to pass budgets in Washington these days. <laughs> um, given the seven-year mandate, it kind of gives the whole development finance enterprise um, a little more stability, and it gives it more than twice as much money. So theoretically, we should be able to see a lot more stability and then just a lot more money supporting the U.S. development finance mission as a result of the BUILD Act. 
It's really interesting to me that there was this bipartisan push to pass this, to reshape U.S. foreign aid and foreign development assistance, and it, as you say, uh, to increase the funding for it, uh, even as every year we hear, you know, oh, the Trump administration wants to gut foreign aid and they've pushed back and they've, they, they're mm -hmm. trying to cut foreign aid. So those sorts of budgets have been roundly disapproved by Congress. Congress wants, wants to do more. And, and honestly, it, it is this idea of great power competition with China that's driving that, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, you know, so it, it, this idea that if we're not there, then, then they're not, then, then they will be. Yep, now, I, but you talk about the Development Finance Corporation. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea with this is not that it's just direct foreign aid, right? Correct. This is the idea is, well, how does it work? You know, what if, is it U.S. companies? What, what's the, the way that this works? So DFC is very similar to OPEC in a lot of ways. The DFC is more of a successor to OPEC than something like a brand new tool would be. Um, so it's an entirely government-owned entity in the executive branch. Um, it works under the guidance of the Secretary of State with private companies to finance. That the, the official line is finance solutions to some of the most pressing challenges the developing world is facing. Mm -hmm. um, and it does this by uh, offering debt financing, political risk insurance, equity financing, and support, which is just a lot of fancy way of saying that this isn't the United States government going into, say, Angola or Nigeria and saying, here, this is, here's a bunch of money from us. Yeah. Um, we'd prefer you spend it on X, Y, and Z. This is the U.S. government supporting private company investment in African countries. Technically, it's for low and middle income countries. Um, but if you look at kind of where the world lays, a lot of those are in Africa. So this will have a giant effect in Africa. Um, yeah, so it, it's not like, so we still do direct aid. U, USAID is the direct aid sort yep. of thing. It, you know, they you give money for them to help build things or to, you know, to build sewer systems or, you know, help development aid. The idea with this is to support American investment into these countries with the idea, right, that this isn't just, you know, development doesn't just happen at the government. Gov development happens because business wants to, to build and invest, right? Correct. Correct. And, so, and does that, can, can you kind of compare that to how the Chinese have done aid uh, and, and what's, what's the, the way forward there? So the biggest difference is the U.S. model uh, development Finance Corporation is government-supported investment from private companies where the Chinese model is directly state-invested. The state owns its major development banks, like the Chinese Export-Import Bank and the China Development Bank are the two that I hit on in the paper. And those are, I guess, on paper or independent entities, but they kind of are controlled by the state. Right. Um, so nothing gets through the Export-Import Bank or Chinese Development Bank, whatever, without kind of state objectives and state um, directed investment. Whereas in the U.S., if, say, a solar energy company wanted to go into Angola or something and build, kind of work on renewable power, they might say, well, it's a little risky in Angola. We don't know if it's the best, the best bet right now. The U.S. government can, through the DFC, can step in and say, hey, we'll provide political risk insurance to kind of make it a little more of a safe investment than you would. Like you might, they might not be willing to invest in it on their own. But right. with, it becomes the private company still investing in the product, project and the country, but this time with the backing of the U.S. government. 
and it's a way to invest. It's a way to um, encourage this investment. And actually, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a cost to the United States as well. It, it's, right. it, you know, because the, the U.S. government is able to put their backing behind it, it shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily be, be cost. So that it's, it's a way to incentivize private investment and to use, you know, I think this is the, one of the best things about the United States is the power of our, our private sector. It's to use the power of our private sector to, to get in there and to help our private sector go out and do that. And of course, the Chinese, you know, they have a private sector as well, obviously, but so many, whether it's, you know, development finance corporations or state-owned enterprises are the ones going out and doing this. You know, it's, it's in Sudan, it's Sinoc, the, the Chinese National Overseas Oil Company. Uh, and I think it's interesting, too, that a lot of the Chinese method is to bring Chinese people there and do the work there and, you know, and actually it, it kind of almost colonial kind of extract resources and extract wealth as opposed to kind of trying to build development and build wealth there. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's the biggest difference um, between the Chinese and the U.S. model is that I guess the Chinese model is more of the um, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Whereas the U.S. model is if you teach the man to fish, then he'll be able to eat for the rest of his life. Yeah. And that is the biggest difference where in China, you have Chinese workers building these projects that benefit China the most. Yeah. Um, as you can see, they only invest in certain areas where it's beneficial to the state, mostly high resource resource rich countries. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in the U.S. model, we have more investment in building development, not dependence is kind of the tagline that's been thrown around. Like you said, you still have $60 billion capital investments every year through the DFC. And it is, that's still a substantial amount of money. Yeah. So you kind of have with the Chinese model, you can get X amount of dollars and kind of not really build the capacity or human capital or infrastructure needed to kind of reap the long-term long -term rewards of that investment. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the US model, you still get substantial amounts of money but the private sector investment uh, benefits more of the, the people in country. So you kind of build that long-term capacity. So you end up with development, like I said, not dependence. So the, the idea is good, but of course, as we've seen, uh, you know, putting it into practice is, is sometimes difficult as well. And, and you know, the, the truth is, of course, that, that the Chinese have spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, the Chinese government has spent a lot of time and effort you know, bringing Chinese leaders to Beijing and really investing a lot of time in this through the, the Belt and Road Initiative and all this sort of stuff. It, it, there's, there's obviously a priority that the Chinese have put on this that is kind of lacking from the U.S. government. When was the last time uh, the U.S. president has spent any time in Africa or even senior leaders? Hardly at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that sort of stuff doesn't go unnoticed when you, you do have to kind of show up uh, yep. if you want to be involved. I was kind of encouraged to see not that long ago, I think in February, um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo did a tour of, I believe it was Senegal, Angola, and mm -hmm. Ethiopia. 
Mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of an encouraging sign of the problem you just laid out. Uh, there hasn't been, or there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of high-level U.S. government attention being paid to Africa, of yeah. high-level senior kind of coordination or um, attention being paid to Africa. So that was very encouraging to see uh, Secretary of State Pompeo actually go over there and speak about a lot of the issues that we cover in this paper. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really important to to know. Now, you know, one of the things that that we talk about too with the the Chinese coming in with with big dollar amounts and big, uh, you know, this isn't all just direct aid either. Uh, there's been this this idea that the Chinese could be creating uh, what you call a debt trap in the paper. Yep. Could you explain what that is and and how it has worked out and what what uh, you know how this could could play out uh, in, across Africa. Yeah, so in kind of a quick sentence, um, a debt trap is when a developing country's debt levels get so high, they're forced to pay off their debts to their creditors, and in this case, it would be China, through access to raw materials or something like that. This is still kind of happening in live time, so we can't necessarily know exactly how it will play out in Africa. Uh, but one place that we have seen this kind of idea of the debt trap um, play out is in Sri Lanka. So the Chinese invested a bunch of money into Sri Lanka as part of their Belt and Road Initiative, um, which then ended up kind of crushing Sri Lanka under the debt that they owed back to China. So in order to manage the debt, Sri Lanka was forced to lease the Humbuntada port um, back to China. So it was a port that was built with Chinese dollars, but the debt levels were so high in Sri Lanka that in order to pay them off, they had to lease this uh, brand new port back to China. And I'm not an expert on Southeast Asian geopolitics, but that created an issue with um, China having a brand new fancy port real close to India, yeah. um, kind of, I guess, a threat to militarize the Indian Ocean. Yeah, the Indians call this like, the, they're, they're afraid of this chain of pearls of ports that, that surround them and everything. It's, uh, it is interesting. But of course, you know, we shouldn't, you know, he who lives in a glass house shouldn't be the first to throw stones, right? You know, it's not like the U.S. and the West is blameless here. You know, for decades, the, it was multilateral development banks and the IMF and everything created, you know, lent to these countries and they became heavily indebted. So much so that there's been this whole movement to, um, to, to forgive debts and, you know, this jubilee movement to, to, to allow them to forgive debts because they were so indebted to the IMF and to the World Bank and, and other Western sort of focused development lenders uh, that it was harming their economic growth. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Right after the colonial period ended in Africa in the 1960s and 70s, uh, they're looking for development, development supports. They turned towards the World Bank and the IMF. And I guess the conditions attached to the World Bank and IMF saying, here, we'll give you this money, or we'll give you this money, um, wasn't necessarily the best for Africa as a whole, and that kind of created a little bit of a, a hole that they dug themselves into. And then thankfully yeah. over the last 20 or so years, you've kind of started to sense a little bit of a shift in the narrative from Africa as a problem to Africa as a potentially great, on the cusp of development and greatness and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's economic growth that is the way to get out of this, right? You know, when, when you talk about the way out of debt the way out of you know all of these problems that that you have i mean the great solution here for developing countries in africa is to figure out way to actually develop to get uh, get from the 
the least developed country level to middle income and, and beyond uh, and, you know, get kickstart growth and actually get it going uh, is the way forward. Yeah. And like I said, I think that's one of the benefits of the U.S. model is it's not dependence, but it is real development where U.S. dollars are going to provide more of a long term likelihood of successful development, not just create this dependence that um, Chinese dollars can. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Um, well, think, it, it, you know, as we get towards the end of, end of our podcast, we always like to ask this question about, you know, ASP thinks about um, not what's in the headlines today, but what's going to be in the headlines tomorrow and, and, and in the future. So we can kind of work towards that. What's a headline that you'd like to see in this area in say five years? Uh, and, uh, you know, and how should we, we be working towards that? Yeah, so I think uh, the issue here is obviously development, and you're not going to see a ton of development progress made in five years, or we, we won't know how development plays out for years to come. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the best, hi- or the best headlines we could read is just something about increased U.S. engagement beyond just the BUILD Act and Development Finance Corporation and that kind of stuff. It's like we talked about earlier with um, kind of focusing on Africa mm-hmm. as a geopolitically important region. Um, not just in words, but also in actions. So maybe seeing some high-level senior government official visits, whether it's the president, vice president, um, secretary of state, whatever, kind of showing that uh, this isn't just a one-off kind of drop in the bucket. Like the U.S. is actually committed to seeing Africa develop, develop properly and develop in a way that will benefit the countries in Africa more long term. Yeah, so, so really just a... a kind of the headline is Africa's growing and the U.S. is is investing. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, it, it provides us something to work towards. Well, John Madeira, thanks for joining us. The thanks paper is uh, Choosing the American Model, Development Finance as a Soft Power Tool in Africa. And you can see that and more written by by John on our on our website, americansecurityproject.org. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Andrew.